Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. University of Saskatchewan professor and Indigenous Affairs Issues expert, author as well, written incredible books about Indigenous issues. Ken Coates is with us. Uh, MLI, McDonald Laurier Institute, Monk Senior Fellow. And he's written a, a new commentary for MLI titled Enough with the Empty Apologies, Canada Must Move Forward in Partnership with Indigenous Peoples. Professor Ken Coates is with us. Uh, Professor Coates, thank you very much for the time. You have a long history of engagement with Indigenous Peoples and Indigenous issues. And you write about the framework for what a new approach might look like to achieve the reconciliation which is being sought. Can we just start with that, please? You sure can, um, and, and I guess I am getting old, so it has been a long time. And perhaps the passage of time is what uh, generates a sense of urgency. We have been talking extensively and expensively about these issues since the 1970s. And, and while we've made some progress on legal and political sides, you know, we still, the, the reality on the ground for most Indigenous people is much as it was in the 1970s, and in some cases much worse. So, so enough already of highfalutin rhetoric, let's get to business. So I'm not a big fan of, of uh, you know, believing that United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People will bring about major changes. I'm a, I'm a pragmatic kind of person. I think we should focus on the real things. And we have really good models of what works in Canada. Uh, the modern treaty arrangements that we have in Western and Northern Canada, for example, have been very, very successful. Self-government agreements with First Nations basically change the dynamic. And we should not be waiting for Ottawa every year to come up with a budget and come up with new policies and programs and more promises. And we should basically trust Indigenous people, Indigenous governments, uh, to set their own agendas, uh, to use the allocations uh, sent to them in the same way we do with the provinces, the same way municipalities do with their funding from the provinces. Let them make their own judgments. Let them set their own agendas. And we're not, we're not getting very far uh, with the model we have now. And I think unless we have dramatic change, um, things are going to boil over. Um, I'm always surprised that they haven't boiled over to this part already. Do we live in a society where interest and concern in First Nations peoples, Indigenous peoples, peaks and, and ebbs? Um, when, we, when we heard about the unmarked graves, there was a tremendous amount of national outpouring but that seems to have, to a certain extent, that's ebbed. And I, I suppose in, in, in some ways that's what happens. People, people stay with an issue or, uh, for, for a period of time and then they move on to other things. But we can't afford this. So do we live in a society where indigenous issues peak for a while and then, and then we, do, so, so we, we retreat and then we have to regain the, the ground we lost by retreating? I think that's a really good description of the situation. And in fact, they, they peak rarely. It's not very often when things come up. And half the time when they peak, they peak in a somewhat negative way. You go back to 1990 and think of the Okra controversy. Go back about a year or so ago with the Wet'suwet'en blockades and inspired brigade blockades that were done in central Canada on the railway system. You know, sometimes interest peaks for the wrong reasons. Um, and I'm very worried about this. I think the unmarked graves tell a very different story than the one we're hearing. The basic story is Aboriginal people have been talking about this for 50 years or more, and it took us that long to listen. And so the Dunmark graves are not a discovery. We've known about them for a long time. So I think it's exactly the way you describe it. 
I think we are in Canadian interest in Indigenous affairs sometimes is a mile wide and a quarter of an inch deep, um, and it evaporates very quickly. And, and that really worries me. So it strikes me that we need to look at those places that made structural changes, some cases 25 years ago, and, and look back and think, boy, you know, we haven't heard from them for a long time. So back in the 1990s, the Nishka were a, a focus of great controversy in the country. Their land claim agreement was going to create hundreds of municipalities, principalities across the nation. I was going to break up and fragment Canada in different sorts of ways. And in fact, the Nishka agree, agreement has been a major, a major accomplishment. The Nishka are doing extremely well, um, but they don't, we don't hear about them anymore. And that's fine. Um, the Nishka don't need you know, ongoing engagement with the country as a whole because they, they reached the place where they could manage their own affairs and do so successfully. So I think, I think we need to sort of get it out of the hands of public interest because that, quite frankly, leaves it vulnerable to the political vicissitudes. Things go up, things go down. A party gets in power and promises things, but they forget to implement them. You know, we, we can't have that strategy because the Indigenous communities pay such a price for it. How do the, uh, and you wrote about this in your MLI piece, how do the unmarked burial sites provide context for the issue of residential schools, which again, as you also write, ignored by successive federal governments far too long, but how do the unmarked burial sites provide context to the issue of the residential schools? Well, it, it reminds us of something very important, and that is the sort of um, the pervasive sort of hand of colonialism and paternalism. For generations, Canada thought it was doing the best things possible. Um, there's a lot of talk now about genocide and using other language of that nature. I, I don't find that very, very successful in explaining what was going on. Um, perhaps the situation of residential schools is the government of Canada really honestly believed it was doing the right thing by taking children from their parents, basically transforming them um, and in, into sort of English or French-speaking Canadians. Um, and, and they misunderstood what they were doing. They misunderstood the impact. Um, and it took a long time to realize the negative effects. And I think that's pretty symptomatic of what goes on in Canada. We, we make a policy a decision, we put it in place, we let it work out for a year or two or 10 or 20 years, and we're really slow at picking up on the negative implications and negative side effects. And that part gets very, very worrisome um, because I, I don't think we learned very well from the past. Um, and so we are basically doomed to repeat it over and over again. And, and so I think we, we need to find, figure out a different way to do these relationships and to do them in a much more uh, systematic and, and productive way. And you say the key is to listen, and you write this in your MLI piece, key is to listen to Indigenous peoples. Now, you also write that reconciliation will be a major issue for the next, uh, and the new Canadian federal government, which we're going to keep beginning at the end of the next month. But the question is, do you believe, do you really believe, uh, Professor Coates, based on experience, that the next government, no matter who forms it, is actually going to listen to uh, to Indigenous peoples and actually uh, take the steps that are necessary after listening uh, to, uh, to to create this reality of reconciliation. Are you hopeful? No, I wish I, I wish I could say I was, and it's no comment to any particular political party. Um, Ottawa has a, a sort of a mind of its own on these things. The national politics do as well. Um, in fact, listening to Indigenous people is listening to a cacophony of voices. There are, are so many. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, 
uh, sort of perspectives. And what happens is the government says, oh, what, what can we do? Let's talk to the AFN. And, you know, here's that. Let's talk to some small groups of Métis, Native Council of Canada, um, rather than talking to all the different communities. That, that simply isn't going to work in the long run. We need a system in place that allows individual communities to chart their own destiny. Uh, we have communities in this country where 75 to 80% of the people associated with a particular First Nation no longer live on the reserve. And the kind of reserve-based models of the past aren't going to work. So I, I think this is a hard one for politicians to get right. Um, it's a hard one for non-Indigenous Canadians to get right. We have to recognize the, the need to sort of um, um, untie some of the binds, that, the, the ropes that have bound us together on these kinds of issues, and let Indigenous communities make their own decisions for themselves with access to appropriate resources. Right now, the Treasury Board and the the Indigenous Affairs have a huge role in Indigenous societies every year, requiring First Nations to make dozens and dozens of applications, applying for housing grants and education grants and applying for government grants and whatever. We're now getting to a model where we're looking at multi-year, sometimes 10-year funding models for First Nations. We're trusting First Nations to make their decisions for themselves, leaving them accountable to their own residents rather than to the oversight of uh, of, of, of Ottawa. And can we get there? Yes, we can get there. Um, it, it's it's a, a mindset jump that's required that basically says Ottawa does not have the solutions. The First Nations, the Inuit, the Métis are the ones that have the solutions. Let's wait for them uh, to make the decisions and make the allocations. Uh, that's not a huge leap in, in, a, in a practical sense, but it's a massive leap in a conceptual and and political sense. My guest is Professor Ken Coates from the University of Saskatchewan, MacDonald Laurier Institute Monk Senior Fellow, and his current op-ed at MLI, and I have posted it to Twitter, at Roy Green Show. Enough with the empty apologies. Canada must move forward in partnership with Indigenous peoples. Professor Coates, um, you say and, and you write that um, fundamentally this federal government and whoever the next federal government is populated by, but fundamentally the federal government has to overhaul their approach to resolving legal disputes, seeking uh, inspiration from solutions such as was were arrived at in New Zealand. Uh, sh- share that with us, please. Uh, happy to. Um, I think Canadians would be mortified if they realized how much money and time was being spent resolving uh, legal issues uh, between Indigenous peoples and the government of Canada. Um, Indigenous folks have often gone to the government and say, hey, we've got a problem here. We had some land that was taken away from us in 1920. We really want it back. Um, and you discover it takes 15, 20 years of legal action and several millions of dollars uh, to actually get a resolution. And we have dozens of, well, actually hundreds of cases going through the courts right now. They take a ferociously long period of time and cost a huge amount of money. Um, And the results are are pretty consistent. You know, the First Nations win the majority of the cases that they take before before the superior courts. They lose more at the the lower levels, but the ones that they persist with, they win quite consistently. Um, and end up with big settlements, uh, some of which we have real problems dealing with, like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal uh, decision on compensation for people, uh, uh, families, and children affected by social policies. Um, this has got to be the worst way, the worst way imaginable. Aboriginal people have every right to use the courts. 
Um, government of Canada has every right to use the courts to defend itself. Now, I'm not a critic of the courts themselves. They're dealing with almost insurmountable problems. And the Supreme Court of Canada is constantly telling the governments and First Nations Indigenous peoples to say, please resolve this yourselves. We don't, we don't really want you bringing these complex issues up to us to, to sort of resolve every time. In New Zealand, they have something called the Waitangi Tribunal. And they have a similar situation in New Zealand, goes back to the 1840s and the Treaty of Waitangi, which essentially established the, the relationship between Maori and, and the newcomer populations in New Zealand. Uh, it's a very kind of informal process. It does not have make binding resolutions, although the government has accepted all of their recommendations, as I understand it, uh, through to the present. Um, it is culturally based. It allows indigenous elders to speak, indigenous storytellers to tell their stories, historians and geographers and other experts to give their information. It is faster, um, it is less confrontational, and it develops, presents, I think, very good results. Um, Jody Wilson, when Wilson Rabo, when she was the Minister of Justice, was very determined to move in this direction and to get away from these endless legal confrontations. And I, I really honestly believe we need to change this dramatically. Otherwise, you know, what happens is Indigenous people lose either way. If they, if they lose the court case, they spend millions of dollars and many years fighting something. Uh, if they win, the pushback is often very strong. And governments well, find under other ways to interfere with their newly discovered rights. This is not a very effective system. Well, I wanted to ask you, because you said at the outset of our conversation that you're concerned there hasn't been more pushback, more, more challenge from the Indigenous community. What if, what if nothing new, innovative, and responsive takes place? So very excellent question, Roy. That's a really interesting and sad one. A number one result is that Indigenous peoples take out their, their sorrow and their hardships on themselves and on each other. Uh, we see that most of the violence in Indigenous communities is built at, at individuals. It's through alcohol and drug abuse, domestic violence, and violence generally. Very little of that violence is ever shown to the non-Indigenous population. I mean, we need to respect the communities for that. Um, the elders and the political leaders do an amazing job at keeping sort of the hotheads, I guess if you want to call them that, under control. But th that can only go on for so long, and we're seeing more and more bursts of anger uh, showing up. We've seen it in some of the things around the residential schools, completely uncalled for burnings of churches and def uh, defacing statues and things of that sort. That's not a way to resolve uh, any, kinds of, any kinds of issues. But at, at some point, the, non, the indigenous population is just going to get sick and tired of waiting. Because remember that the, the costs of waiting are borne disproportionately by the indigenous people. If you're sitting here struggling for economic survival, for political freedom, et cetera, et cetera, and you're not getting it, um, then you're the ones that are paying the, the price. The federal government can stall these things as they have done for, for 40 years, stall them endlessly. Um, but, but the neat thing is, and I, I don't want to be so pessimistic, the great thing is, is when you actually get to the end of a, a proper reconciliation, the modern treaties in the Yukon, Northwest Territories, Nunavut, uh, in James Bay, Northern Quebec, in Nishka, places like that across the country, self-government agreements from Prince Edward Island through, through across the prairies, when, when you actually reach a final agreement, the lights come on, the world gets better. Indigenous people you know, are able to provide jobs for their folks, able to sort of create some sense of, of cultural and, and traditional stability. Right. So, so the good news is we have, we, we know what works. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 